please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three more articles from the November-December 2020 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. You can also earn CME credit by listening to this podcast. For information about CME credit or to read archive issues of Algae Watch, head over to college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. And finally, please watch out for continued discussion on this topic on the ACAAI community on DocMatter. We'll have key talk takeaways and engaging question answer with the opportunity for ongoing conversation about today's topic. Hello again, my name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor at Emory University and the co-host of Allergy Talk. And I'm once again joined by my two co-hosts. First, Dr. Stan Feynman. Hello everybody and thank you. I'm currently the editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. I'm in practice here in Atlanta. I'm also on the clinical faculty at Emory. And then, my other co-host, Dr. Marin Caravella. Hello, everyone. This is Marin Caravella, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. So we have a potpourri of articles covering a lot of very interesting topics. So I think we should just get right into it. So Stan, I think you have something more to tell us about chronic rhinosinusitis phenotypes and endotypes. Exactly. In fact, that's the uh, this article. In fact, you reviewed this for uh, Allergy Watch from the Journal of Allergy Clinical Immunology. It's entitled "Type Two Inflammation in Chronic Rhinosinusitis Without Nasal Polyps: Another Relevant Endotype." And this is uh, from some excellent researchers, mostly in uh, in Europe. And basically, they start out by pointing out the fact that, in general, phenotypically, the chronic rhinosinusitis patients are classified with nasal polyps and those without nasal polyps. And really, 20% have nasal polyps, 80% just have plain chronic rhinosinusitis without nasal polyps. So we know that. We also know that, in general, the endotyping has shown that the patients who have chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps generally have had the type 2-based eosinophilic inflammation in about 80% of the patients. On the other hand, the chronic rhinosinusitis without nasal polyps are generally considered to be primarily type 1 to type 3 inflammation that's associated with neutrophils and regulated by uh, other cytokines such as IL-6, IL-8, IL-17, and TNF-alpha, so not the type 2 cytokines that we all you know, are known and are familiar with. So what these researchers did was a cluster analysis. They basically looked at the uh, two different immune responses in patients who had chronic rhinosinusitis without nasal polyps who had had endoscopic sinus surgery. So they were looking for that, and that's what these researchers did. They analyzed mucosal tissue. This is tissue from the surgeries of 240 white patients who had chronic rhinosinusitis without nasal polyps, who had the functional endoscopic 
sinus surgery. And the endotyping studies that were carried out and the cases were classified according to various markers, the cytokine expression markers. And the findings were then analyzed with reference to the clinical characteristics of the patients, including the recurrence of the sinus disease, comorbid asthma, the presence of allergies, also blood eosinophilia, and neutrophil counts as well. So the type 2 immune response with the um, IL-5 concentrations above a certain cutoff of 12.9 picograms per gram of tissue was found in 49% of patients who had the chronic rhinocytositis without nasal polyps. And this pattern was also associated with increased levels of IL-4, of eosinophilic cationic protein, even of staph aureus endotoxin-specific IgE. And these patients had this type 2 immune response. They also had increased blood and tissue eosinophils, as well as eosinophilic inflammation, you know, such as uh, chocolate-laden crystals, some eosinophil uh, exocellular trap death, so to speak, and they had long-term recurrence rate. So the long-term recurrence rate was 19% for patients who had type 2 chronic rhinosinusitis without nasal polyps versus the 9% who had non-type 2. So, you know, obviously it doubled the, the risk of having a recurrence when you had the type 2 characteristics. So the prevalence of comorbid asthma was 30% in the type 2 and only 9% in the non-type 2. So three times more likely to have the asthma comorbidity as well. So about 3% of the patients with the type 2 chronic rhinocytositis also developed nasal polyps within a 12-year period. So there was evidence, they felt, of the type 2 immune responses in about half of the patients undergoing sinus surgery for chronic rhinosinusitis, even without nasal polyps. And they felt that this shows significant eosinophilic inflammation, higher rates of clinical recurrence, and also uh, rates of asthma. So a specific you know, phenotype of this uh, cluster analysis of these types of patients. And what you mentioned in your review Jerry, was that there may be this subset of patients who have chronic rhinocytositis without nasal polyps who could respond to maybe some of these type 2 targeted biologics. And, you know, that's a suggestion for a different type of treatment. So even if they don't have the nasal polyps and they have the chronic rhinocytositis, they might, we maybe should consider the candidates and we could talk about that too. I mean, we always think about the unified airway again. And, and certainly these patients, you know, not all of them had asthma, but a fair number of them had asthma are probably having the same thing top to bottom. I think what was just disappointing is there's really not a good way to identify T2 chronic rhinocytositis with nasal polyps. Yes, there's, I guess, a general trend and an elevation of these markers, but, you know, even the non-type 1 patients... I'm sorry, the non-type 2 patients, apologies, had elevated Ig and eosinophils. I, I know it was significantly higher in the type 2 patients without nasal polyposis. You know, I think IgE was actually pretty significantly higher overall, which is a, a successful biomarker. But still, I think patient selection is going to be very important. I, I, can't, I can't imagine a situation where we're just going to throw this on everybody when we don't really have a good justification, unless we, again, we get better biomarkers. I think I had reviewed a paper on allergy talk a few months ago, just looking at the efficacy of 
dipilumab in patients with asthma and concomitant chronic sinusitis that was not stratified by the presence or absence of nasal polyps. That was sort of like a post hoc analysis of the Quest study. And in general, patients with comorbid chronic sinusitis just tended to have more asthma exacerbations and overall higher levels of type 2 biomarkers. And in addition to a more prominent effect on asthma control, dipilumab was also associated with a significant improvement in SNOT22 scores in patients with concomitant chronic sinusitis. So it would just be interesting to see if something will actually get approved for that chronic sinusitis indication. Um, I know that last year uh, we were looking at possibly, uh, there were trials looking at um, GB001, or which is a prostaglandin D2 blocker specifically for the indication of chronic sinusitis, but then it, the news was just released that it did not meet any of its um, primary endpoints in the trial. So it's been sort of abandoned for this purpose. But I just think patient selection is everything, right? Like right. clearly not everyone's going to respond. How do you find the people who are the right candidates for this therapy? <laughs> I, I, I remember the inclusion criteria for that particular trial evaluating um, the prostaglandin D2 blocker was based on the presence of um, blood eosinophils. So they did. So they did use. They did stratify patients with potentially like type two inflammation. So in this study, it's interesting. If you look at the different uh, tables, you could see that uh, even in the non-type two chronic rhinosinusitis patients without nasal polyps, their uh, median bloody eosinophilia was just under two hundred, whereas the type two patients, their median was a little, about 300. So it was a little higher, but definitely it was still elevated in the non-type two. So you know, that's, that's a challenge. Now, there was a much greater differentiation in the uh, tissue, in the biopsies when they did the, uh, after the surgery, they could see a lot of eosinophils in the tissues in the type two and practically no eosinophils in the non-type two. But the blood, they did have eosinophils in the non-type two. I think we mentioned earlier about sampling of the upper airway and, you know, running, expression, you know, gene expression, that sort of thing. Maybe that's what we should be doing. We or should be considering when we're considering these therapies, right? Getting some sort of biological information through either mRNA and real-time PCR or again, nasal washes. I, I, speculative, but clearly we need to find the people who respond to these therapies. That's right. And to continue our conversation from the previous episode, maybe doing those gene expression studies would not be a bad idea, even in patients who are started on like biologics, for instance, to see why some are responders and some are not. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I did want to mention, since you're talking about doing all these analysis and gene therapy, you know, gene analysis, when I started practice, I'm going to, I'm going to pull the old person card right now. We used to do uh, nasal eosinophils. So we would swab the nose and measure their nasal eosinophils. And that would help us predict whether or not they were allergic, whether they had allergic uh, triggered asthma, you know, and it was part of our uh, evaluation of patients. And obviously we don't do that anymore, but uh, maybe we're coming back to it. <laughs> and we're coming back. We got a sample. We got we to go where the problem is and get information, you know, for sure. We just throw medicine at it. We need to understand what's going on. I completely with, agree with you. Uh, the best way to do that's, we're not sure. We're not there yet. So, Marin, I think you have the next article. 
And this is very interesting about a whole new the, another realm of mast cell activation that I did not even know about. Yes, um, so this is a really interesting paper and um, it was published in the European Respiratory Journal earlier this year and reviewed in Allergy Watch by Bradley Chips. It highlights the heterogeneity of mechanisms underlying asthma and specifically the role of inflammation and pathways of inflammation and non-atopic asthma. So we know that mast cells in the lung can directly promote contraction of airway smooth muscle and bronchoconstriction by releasing leukotrienes and histamines through activation of the high affinity IgE receptor. But mast cells are also involved in allergen independent processes capable of causing bronchoconstriction, for instance, in exercise-induced asthma, in which bronchoconstriction is believed to be caused by hyperosmolarity and thermal changes of the airway lining associated with exposure to cool and dry air. So therefore, IgE-independent mechanisms of mast cell activation also exist and can mediate bronchoconstriction. And one mechanism of airway smooth muscle contraction involves this ubiquitous calcium permeable cation channel. It's called TRPV4, which stands for transient receptor potential vanilloid 4. And this TRPV4 is a channel that is activated by a whole range of stimuli, osmotic stress, low pH, mechanical stimuli, heat. It's been implicated in several different pulmonary processes like cough, asthma, COPD. Like I said, it's widely expressed, but it's not present on mast cells, it's expressed on airway smooth muscle. And TRPV4 stimulation has been shown to increase airway smooth muscle, intracellular calcium, and bronchoconstriction. But it's been previously demonstrated that this TRPV4 mediated airway constriction seems to be entirely dependent on leukotrienes and it can be blocked by Montelukast. So trying to make some sense of why TRPV4 stimulation on airway smooth muscle causes leukotriene dependent bronchoconstriction, the authors of this paper performed this series of experiments that were just very creative to delineate the mechanism by which TRPV4 activation causes bronchoconstriction. So first they showed that the TRPV4 agonist, GSK, you know, long series of numbers, not important, showed a pro-contractile effect on airway smooth muscle. And they showed this using tracheal tissue preparations that they isolated from both guinea pigs as well as human lungs. And these effects were blocked by pretreatment with a TRPV4 antagonist. But also the application of Montelukast as well as Xyluton inhibited TRPV4 stimulated contraction of airway smooth muscle, confirming the role of leukotrienes in this process. And then they looked in cultured human airway smooth muscle cells wherein the TRPV4 agonist that they used increased intracellular calcium. And to try and link the capacity of this calcium influx and airway smooth muscle contraction, 
they used this imaging technique that I've never heard of called tychography, um, which sort of looks at three-dimensional characteristics of the cell and links the measure of cell contraction with changes in intracellular calcium. So the point of going to that was that surprisingly, tychography showed that TRPV4 agonist-induced increase in intracellular calcium actually did not cause cell contraction in these cultured airway smooth muscles, suggesting that the activation of TRPV4 on airway smooth muscles causes the release of a mediator that activates mast cells, that releases leukotrienes, causing bronchoconstriction. And then they did other experiments showing that TRPV4 stimulation causes ATP release from smooth muscle cells, and this stimulates mast cells causing bronchoconstriction, and the effect can be blocked by leukotriene inhibitors. And finally, because protease-activated receptor 2, or PAR2, has been known to couple with TRPV4 and is also expressed on every smooth muscle in humans, the authors looked at the ability of the endogenous PAR2 agonist trypsin to try and reproduce the effect of this TRPV4 agonism and trypsin-stimulated contraction of human airway smooth muscle was again blocked by Montelukast. So the conclusions were that TRPV4 activates mast cells and thereby causes airway smooth muscle contraction. These TRPV4 channels on the airway smooth muscle can be gated either directly using this synthetic agonist that was used in these experiments or through activation of the protease activated receptor to on airway smooth muscle. And TRPV4 activation results in ATP secretion, mast cell receptor activation, mediator release that is leukotrienes causing bronchoconstriction. And I thought it was interesting that the protease activated receptors coupled with TRPV4, because we do know that this plays a role in mold-triggered asthma or fungal or severe fungal asthma. And so what the authors postulated is that the same axis that starts with PAR2 and then signals through TRPV4, ATP, mast cells, ultimately leukotriene release, could play a role in bronchoconstriction that is associated with fungal asthma. So essentially, this TRPV4-dependent allergen-independent mechanism could act concomitantly with allergen-dependent activation of mast cells and augment their effects. And interestingly, they also provided a mechanism for the GERD asthma relationship. They mentioned that TRPV4 is activated by low pH, so reflux may exacerbate asthma by triggering TRPV4 and thereby indirectly causing mast cell activation and bronchoconstriction. So I thought this paper was very exciting because it just really very nicely elucidated sort of additional mechanisms of non-allergic asthma and may even herald or illustrate new therapeutic agents in the future. So that's very interesting. Did they comment on inflammation meaning 
potentially, I would assume cystine leukotriene production mass activation would be more of an eosinophilic phenotype, but I, I don't want to speak out of turn because you mentioned these other mechanisms. Did they talk about the inflammatory profile? No, they did not. They did not. They just sort of honed in on those leukotrienes, which made me like sort of reconsider my whole approach of never giving anyone singular. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, we know that there are people out there who respond to Montelukast. It's just that we don't know who these people are. You, You wonder, maybe those Montelukast responders... Meaning Montuka is better than inhaled steroid. That's really what I'm suggesting. Maybe they are something along this mechanism. Completely speculative, but you know, clearly that Montuka is the better drug for them for a reason. You know, and and maybe this is one of them. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. There was a editorial along, you know, paired with this, uh, and they were pointing out that this uh, TRPV4, you know, mechanism is responsible for uh, a number of things. It's been implicated in things like cough, uh, COPD, lung edema, and even uh, exercise-induced uh, asthma. And you know, the question is, you know, are we going to start developing therapeutic agents that target this? That would be great. We need another weapon. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> you know, the more the better, for sure. So that's a great, that's a, such an interesting article. Thank you for sharing that one, Marin. So I'm going to round out the trio of articles. And I don't think we've talked about a immunology article in a while. I mean, I'm sorry, immunodeficiency article in a while. I, that's really what I meant. So I got to mix it up. So for people who are real fans of immunology, clinical immunology, this was a very interesting article, just sort of a heads up from the group up at uh, Mass General Hospital in Boston. And so what they did is they are examining IgG and IgG subclasses, but examining sex and racial differences. And again, I've never really considered that before. Certainly, I consider age. I have all these referrals where the patient's flagged to be hypogam, and then you just apply the normal range that is appropriate for the age, and it goes away. Easiest consult to do. But not really much known about other groups and whether the normal ranges should apply to those populations. So what they did in this article is they looked at their entire patient data registry. So there's this Partners Research Patient Data Registry. It spanned between January 1st, 1989 and March 15th, 2018. And they queried all the patients who had an IgG subclass performed. Now, just to put the caveat here, that's all comers. You know, we're going to understand people getting IgG subclasses, there's probably something wrong that people are looking for. So by no means am I stating that this is a healthy cohort, but to do exploratory research, you, you got to start somewhere. And I think it's quite reasonable to start in this fashion. So, you know, with that caveat, they look at patients who are adults. So these are 18 above. So we're not worried about the pediatric population. And basically they pulled out of the chart normal demographics like 
you know, date of birth and race, address and diagnoses because they wanted to get certain categories and you can imagine what those are, immune deficiencies, autoimmune diseases, infection, pulmonary diseases. They were trying to collect some information. So when they looked at their population, we could start with gender. In general, the most significant difference that relate to gender between the IgG and the IgG subclasses is IgG4. So interestingly, IgG4 is generally higher in males than females. It was 56.3 on average milligrams per deciliter for males versus 37 for females. And certainly we use IgG4 potentially for diagnoses of IgG4-related disease. So there's this idea that maybe we should consider what would be our cutoff for an elevated IgG4 if we're thinking about that. Maybe. Now, the race information was really interesting to me. Full disclosure, I'm East Asian. So looking at total IgG, the highest mean IgG level was black patients. 1,504. Asians next, 1,340. White, 988. So 988 white, black, 1,504. That's 50% higher on average. Now, again, I'm talking about broad averages here. Now, let's talk about the subclasses. Subclasses, black patients, 938. They had the highest IgG1. White patients, 592, Asians somewhere in the middle. IgG2, Asians have the highest IgG2 levels of 493 compared to whites, 305. Blacks, again, in between those two. IgG3, black patients have the highest IgG3 levels, 91.9 for black patients, 55.9 for white patients, Asians in the middle. And then IgG4, very significant. Asian patients, 140 milligrams per deciliter was their average IgG4 level versus black and white patients. Black, 53, white, 41. Again, you know, we're talking triple, almost triple the amount of the concentration. So, Again, very exploratory research. They they looked at the effect of patients undergoing immunodeficiency workup. You know, obviously there might be some patients undergoing some sort of immunodeficiency workup, maybe hypogam. They eliminated those patients, still had the uh, same observations. And clearly, I don't know the diagnosis of every single patient here. So it has to be validated in a healthy cohort. But interestingly... And I didn't know this, you know, be me being East Asian, it's possible that I have a higher IgG4 level at baseline than other populations. And potentially that would affect how I'm evaluated, how people think of me when they're considering differential diagnoses and other racial groups uh, might be identified by different ways. For example, if you have ever high baseline IgG, hypogam, your definition potentially should be different. If you're a black patient, would you have a higher baseline IgG level? Again, clearly I'd be more interested in a healthy population 
but these gender race differences and how we apply normal ranges seem to extend beyond more more than age. And again, we should just be aware of it. Clearly, we work better. I mean, we we treat the patient. We don't treat numbers, but we do use numbers to support our um, diagnosis. So it's always a good lesson just to uh, think about potentially what other factors in place where we're interpreting results. And of course, we do functional testing. That's the other <laughs> thing, right? We, you know, we don't. So, yeah, Jerry, let me just jump in here. You know, it's not that you know with the way you were analyzing it. We do know that the IgG one is the the largest component of total IgG, and IgG four is the smallest component in terms of the total percentage. Uh, uh, so I'm not sure, you know, what what these numbers mean. I think the implication of the authors was particularly about the role of IgG four, how that's used in clinical practice as the diagnosis IgG four related disease. But you're right. I mean, in clinical practice, at least I'm not sure of a specific cutoff where a patient would be potentially be misdiagnosed. But again, uh, that would require further investigation as well. Yeah, I have no comment. I can't remember the last time I ordered IgG subclasses. So, <laughs> I, uh, Honestly, that's the only reason I order it. I only order it if I was worried about IgG4-related disease. You know, you see some patient with um, really bad lymphadenopathy and you know what you want to figure what's what's going on there um i mean i guess technically if you had like an autoimmune pancreatitis patient or something mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of those patients don't see us by the way but you know something although you know igg4 we're using that in research to look for response immune response for uh, our immunotherapy i mean that is clearly correlated i mean the the higher igg4 is specific it's a specific antibody but that's what we see responding to our immunotherapy uh whether it's oral immunotherapy or subcutaneous uh it's an igg4 so uh, i agree with baron i don't order subclasses but I think the role for our specific IgG4 type measurements are for measuring immune response. Yeah. And, you know, we're learning so much about T2 responses and the role of IgG4. I think on a previous, I'm not sure if it's this podcast or a journal club, you know, there's correlation with very high IgG4 and eosinophilic esophagitis, you know, food specific Ig, uh, IgG4 and eosinophilic esophagitis. So, you know, as we learn more about these conditions, the actual interpretation of the results are more helpful. Clearly, by no means am I implying that is the only role for that test. But, you know, in terms of measuring the total IgG subclasses, I know some people think about immunodeficiency by measuring subclasses, but, but you know, generally the proof's in the pudding. It's going to be functional testing that's going to back that up as well. So, Anyways, I thought this was a very interesting issue of Allergy Watch. Please uh, go to the college website and read the rest of the fine articles that the other assistant editors and Stan reviewed. And please rate our podcast if you enjoy what you're listening to. We welcome your feedback, corrections, and suggestions. The email again is allergytalkoneword at acaai.org. And I hope everyone have a wonderful 2021. It's been a heck of a year, everybody. <laughs> All right. Have the wonderful rest of the day.
The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee has nothing to disclose. Dr. Caravilla has been a speaker and consultant for GlaxoSmithKline, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for Takeda and has done research with AI Immune, DBV, and BioChrist.